Before we start, we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash popfictionwomen. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. We are delighted to chat with Christina Baker-Klein, a number one New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including Orphan Train and A Piece of the World. Christina is published in 40 countries across the globe. Her fifth novel, Orphan Train, spent more than two years on the New York Times bestseller list, including five weeks at number one. Her eighth novel, The Exiles, is out August 25th and is already receiving glowing praise. So welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Christina, thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. On this podcast, our tagline is We're Complicated, and you have given us so much to explore on the topic of complicated women and girls. But before we dive into our questions, why don't you tell us a little about The Exiles? I would be happy to. My one sentence description is that The Exiles is the story of the convict women who transformed Australia and the Aboriginal people whose way of life was destroyed when colonists landed on their shores. That's sort of the big picture. Yes. It's about it's about a trio of women, three different perspectives, two of whom are from the British Isles and have been transported to Australia on a convict ship, and one of whom is an Aboriginal girl who existed in real life named Mathena and who's taken in in a kind of Pygmalion story that we can discuss yes. by the governor and his wife as a social experiment to see if they could turn her into a lady. Yeah, your opening pages really nail that perspective. Complicated and troubling perspective, but real, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the greatest challenge of the book, I would say, is to try to convey this young girl's experience. In real life, she was five years old when she was taken by the governor and his wife. And in my early writing... At the beginning, I, I kept her that age, but I realized that I needed her to have a more developed consciousness. So I made her eight to 11, eight to 12, really, in the book. Yeah. It takes place over about four years, and then it jumps way ahead. But that was the challenge, was trying to 
convey the complexity of her experience at a time when her people, the Aboriginal people in Australia, were not only dominated by by all Europeans, but really the British came in and made it terrible, which yeah. is what happened all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who's, you know, British, yeah. like yeah. I, I literally have half British citizenship. I was born right. there. Right. But also my family background is Irish, English, and Scottish. I I recognize that they were almost always the oppressors and the colonizers, this small nation trying yeah. to take over the world. Right. And they came to Australia and they not only wanted to just shunt aside the native people who lived there, but they actually wanted to get, exterminate them. And of course, they did a similar thing in America. But what I saw as I as I delved into the story of of what happened to the Aboriginal people is that in some ways it was like a combination of our nation's history with both native people and African-American people right? because they were enslaved in cases and they were also pushed out. And at one point there was a shoot to kill policy for Aboriginal people in Tasmania because they're, they, the British came in and tried to fence everything up. So anyway, it was that part of the history is pretty complicated. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. And we'll come back to that. So you have an amazing knack for uncovering little known historical stories and turning them into compelling fiction with a twist. History, as you know, is often told, I think, from the perspective of men, right? The people in power, the winners, the generals, the presidents. But your novels illuminate little known aspects of history from the perspective of ordinary people, including women and children. Uh, you summarized your books saying, Orphan Train tells the story of immigrants in destitute circumstances. A Piece of the World is about an ordinary woman, Christina Olson, living in rural Maine, who became the subject of Andrew Wyeth's best-known painting. The Exiles is about poor women sentenced to deportation. So is this something uh, you're interested in exploring the stories or perspectives that have traditionally been ignored in history? Is it your way of sort of raising those voices through fiction that are perhaps, you know, ignored or, or perhaps couldn't tell their stories themselves? Yeah, it's become more of a conscious understanding on my part because you, you're drawn to what you're drawn to and you don't always know the underlying motivations until you step back and see that there are patterns in your own work. And one of the one of the nice things about having reviews written about your work, for example, even though they can be terrifying, yeah. is that reviewers will often tell you what your obsessions are. They'll, they'll make yeah. connections between yeah. books. Mm -hmm. and, and I had that happen with A Piece of the World because I wrote Orphan Train as a departure from the contemporary novels that I'd written before. I'd always been drawn to stories of women and hidden stories. My father is a historian, and I thought I had nothing in common with him as a writer. I mean, I... I've always loved reading his books and he has dozens of them published by university presses and his big book, actually his only real commercial book was a biography of Jesse Owens. And he wrote the first real biography of Jesse Owens for Macmillan decades ago. And it became a mini series and then a movie and, oh, wow. and he uncovered a lot about that story that people didn't know that now actually is quite well known about Jesse Owens' life and how he ran, uh, you know, in, in the Olympics and the Nazis were there and all of it. But as I started writing fiction, I was the only person in my family who, who did that. And I, I felt that it wasn't 
at all like writing history. But my own research project for every book has become more and more like my father's work mm-hmm. and his research mm-hmm. in that it's just exhaustive and you do, you just dive deep mm-hmm. and he writes longhand and I write longhand. We take notes in a similar way. Oh, wow! So I wrote Orphan Trey. I, I found the story. I was visiting my husband's family one year at the winter holidays in North Dakota and my three little boys were running around and my my mother-in-law pulled a book off the shelf in desperation just to entertain them that was filled with newspaper articles about this small town in North Dakota where she grew up. And she was leafing through it and they came across a story about orphan train riders and she'd never heard of them. But then she turned the page and there was a photograph of her father in this article and his siblings. And she was flabbergasted and shocked. They were all dead. She had never heard anything about it. And I was standing there and I realized, wow, this is a story now. This is a story. But I'd never done anything like it. I'd never written about the past. And I felt entirely intimidated by the idea. So I went on and wrote another couple of books, actually. (laughs) But I was throwing ideas into a file. And I realized that this whole story was hidden in plain sight. You know, there were even New York Times articles in this time period, meaning in the contemporary about train riders. And so eventually I summoned the courage. And when I started that book, there were 125 living train riders. When I finished it, I think there were 25. And now there are none because the trains ended in 1929. So I felt really lucky to interview, to talk to 11 of them and interview seven of them. And when I realized that I could do it, when I realized I actually could do it, mm-hmm. it inspired me to be more ambitious for my next book. And by more ambitious, I mean, I took on a story about people who really lived and that was really hard. Right. And then mm-hmm. this novel is even in some ways more ambitious in that it's way across the seas and not my people. exactly. Right. And so I, yeah. So, and I read a piece when I was writing this novel by Jill Lepore mm-hmm. in the New Yorker called Just the Facts, ma'am. And she's an incredible writer. And she said that fiction does or can do what history doesn't but should. Yes. Which is to tell the story Mm -hmm. of ordinary people. And she said, ordinary men, she said. Mm -hmm. And then she went on to say, and who are these ordinary (laughs) men? Well, a lot of them are women. And I realized, yeah, that's exactly what I do. Yes, yes. Which Mm -hmm. brings me perfectly to my next question. And as you said, You've written a range of books, different genres from nonfiction to women's fiction, historical fiction, but they all center around what we call complicated women, which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings. Kate and I have talked about this and we feel we're both complicated, but we're conflicted about it, which I think just adds a level of irony that's perfect for us. But for a long time, Kate felt she like she needed to hide those kind of messy or softer sides. I didn't hide them, but I felt very misunderstood because I was more than one thing. I dared to be more than one thing. And that's why we both really love stories with complicated women as protagonists, because with a little bit of distance in the fiction, she feels a little freer. I feel a little bit more accepted. So we wanted to ask you, since you're clearly drawn to the same types of things, what are you interested in exploring with complicated women? And why are you trying to tell their stories and drawn to their stories in general? 
it's just not interesting unless they're complicated. Uh, I'm one of four girls. I'm the oldest of four. And, and I, three of us have three boys. So I know Kate, you were mentioning that you have sons as well. Yes. And boys are wonderful. I feel really lucky to have boys, but it was such a shock to all of us to have all these boys. Right, right. (laughs) And in a funny way, it made us closer as sisters Mm. because we found that there are some gender differences that play out over time. One of my sisters actually is a psychoanalyst, and before she had boys... She thought that gen- she essentially thought gender was a social construct. Right. She has yeah. changed her mind <laughs> on that because you see how early in life these things play out. One of my sisters has a trans kid, and that's mm-hmm. another iteration mm-hmm. that's really interesting mm-hmm. for all of us to learn about and to understand something else about gender and expectation and society, yes. all of that. Yes. I, in my novels, my task is to, well, there's this great quote from Thomas Hardy. He said, the task of a novelist is to show the sorrow underlying the grandest things and the grandeur underlying the sorriest things. And I take that to heart in that I think I'm always looking for the flip side. So for example, in the exiles, my characters are in some grim circumstances and they manage to find friendship and they make connections with each other and also to find beauty mm-hmm. in things. When I taught in a women's prison, which was part of my inspiration for this book, I taught in the only all-female women's prison in New Jersey, and I taught in Supermax. They had wow. Wow. the regular population, mm-hmm. then maximum security, and then, and then Supermax, which is really people who don't get out. Mm-hmm. And I found... I think the thing that most surprised me is that it was, as you might expect, fairly difficult Mm -hmm. to live there, grim, tough. I taught once a week and I had to go through four levels of security even to get into that part of the prison. But these women actually had found joy in different ways. They, for example, they have a commissary with the most, with food that you really not want to eat. But like, say you have a taco mix of like, powdered taco mix and then you have ramen noodles and then you have a can of peas or whatever they would they were very inventive with Mm -hmm. food and it was part of the social currency yes with trading things and coming up with ideas and they 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 planted a a flower garden with wildflower seeds you know there were all kinds of things like that 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 showed me that you you make a life where you make a life and you, people can find joy in all kinds of places and ways. And so that was inspiring as I wrote this book, because one of the things I wanted to focus on and to look at was how, though it was crazy, ridiculously hard to be right. <laughs> stuck on a repurposed slaving ship and brought to this land where you knew no one, right. Australia is quite beautiful. And not only that, but once you got out of prison, if you survived and got out, there was social mobility that you had no access to in England, which is was so highly stratified that people couldn't move. Your accent determined everything about who you were. Right. And you got to Australia and you suddenly realized that you could kind of become something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that free people married 
convicts. There was a convict stain that's undeniable. We could talk about that later. But the the truth is a lot of these women thrived once they got out of prison. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's and that's what we love is holding the space for both things that you could have. You know, now there are real social barriers and structural issues that need that I'm not trying to gloss over, but being rich or it doesn't make you happy and being poor doesn't make you destitute and miserable and there there can be both things at the same time uh, those the, especially emotionally well there's also yeah there's a lot of ingenuity that comes from from hardship, hardship and yes. Yes. in fact yesterday i was talking with some people about how this pandemic that we are in the midst of is terrible in mm. so many ways and it also is inspiring a lot of thought this i did an event last night with a museum and we were talking about artists in the time of covid and how they're finding new forms of expression in both the written word and visual artists and that it's going to be playing out in ways that that thing is changing it's changing the world we don't even know yeah so who are the complicated women that inspire you? And you can choose from real life or fiction. Oh, how interesting. Well, my favorite novels are both about doomed, complicated <laughs> heroines. Anna Karenina uh, and Madame Bovary, both 19th century powerhouse novels. I guess it's probably a cliche to say that they're my favorite novels, but I reread them every, you know, five or six years because Emma Bovary and Anna Karenina mm -hmm. are both responsible in some ways for their own complicated and eventually tragic yeah. fates. They mm -hmm. are fully involved in all of the bad decisions that lead them where they go. But you can also see how they've been constrained by a society that had no room for women in any kind of powerful position or any, even any kind of, you know, intellectual milieu. They don't have a way to be, as you've said, anything more than a one-dimensional yeah, right. character. And so, you know, women were expected to marry and behave in a certain way. And that was it. Yeah. So I, first of all, these two novels are beautifully written. Mm -hmm. And I would add Middlemarch also by oh, George yeah. Eliot, mm -hmm. a woman written by a woman. Yes. Because, she, because Dorothea in that novel, who also ends up sort of tragic, I guess, has just such limited choices and that it's all about kind of where you're born and who you marry. And mm -hmm. so those books really inspired me not only for the complexity of thought, which is evident on in every paragraph but for the their portraits of flawed and complicated women yes oh those are great ones yes Anna Karenina is one of my favorites but I'll tell you one thing I just read a novel that blew me away which yeah. came out a few years ago it's called All My Puny Sorrows oh, by okay. Miriam T-O-E-W-S okay. I always forget I think it's Ters okay she wrote a novel called Women Talking which that came out fairly recently I made a splash. I actually prefer All My Puny Sorrows. Okay. It is one of the best portraits of complicated women that I've ever read. Oh, yay. It is oh. such a good read. So complicated and so beautiful and yet 
so easy to read, so slightly humorous. Oh. Like I can't stop recommending it. Oh, fantastic. We're going to ask you later for recommendations and things. So that I, I, I love Add it. Add the list. I just yeah. wrote it down. Absolutely. Yeah, def- yes. Definitely. Yeah. I'll be, I'm dying to know what you think of it. Oh, okay. Well, you'll hear from us. <laughs> so we wanted to shift gears a little bit to writing. You've received your bachelor's degree in English from Yale, your master's in literature from Cambridge, your MFA from University of Virginia. It seems like you knew you wanted to be a writer. Is that from a young age or when did you know and when did you take it seriously? I love this question because when I teach, I always say that all children are born creative. They, every child writes yeah. and paints and draws and dances mm. and sings, right? Every child, think of your own yes. childhood and your own children. Yeah. And then most people lose those things along the way and maybe have one vestige as a hobby or something. Right. But the, for, so for me, I just didn't lose the, that. I love that. I, I, I didn't lose it, but, but a lot of things went into not losing it. I think bullheadedly, I tended to, you know, this may be just a personality trait. I'm not sure how it happens, <laughs> but, and I always tell my sons this, like that I got a lot of no's I got one slim yes, I would follow the yes. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, this person says I can do that. Right. So I'm going to go over here and listen to that person. And this don't person. dwell on the nose. Just go. And don't dwell on the yeah. nose. I mean, of course, we all have lots of no's, but I did really try to block out the nose and follow this, follow the direction I thought I wanted to go in. But to be honest with you, pulling back from all of it, I, my real skill, my only skill, I have very very limited skills. My only real skill is that I'm a good editor. I'm a really good editor. And I, in fact, I made a living for many years as a freelance manuscript editor. And also as a, I got, you know, I, I, because I got an MA and an MFA, I could teach in creative writing programs. So I did that as well, taught full time for a number of years, but by editing other people's work, I also really learned to edit my own work. Mm -hmm. It helped so much, but I always thought I would be an editor and I, dreamed of having a New York life where I would skip down the <laughs> sidewalk and go off to my magazine job or my, you know, my, my book editor job. I just thought that would be the coolest With your thing red pen ever. in hand. Yes. <laughs> and my yeah. oversized sunglasses yeah. and my tote bag. So I had this sort of dream <laughs> of myself. But then this strange thing happened, which is that I, when I was a junior in college, and this was just, just whatever, but the way the publishing industry works, as I'm sure you know, is that it's lemming-like, meaning whatever the thing is that catches excitement for a minute, then gets beaten to death. Yes. Like everybody wants that and it happens and yes. and there are these enormous trends. And so when I was 20, the trend was that all these young people were getting published and getting these big advances and, and writing best-selling books like Brett Easton Ellis and Jay McInerney and Slaves of New York, Tama Janowitz and The Secret History, Donna Tartt, you know. So there was this idea that young people were going to be the next thing. And so when I was when I was that age, I took a writing workshop with a woman who had just won the National Book Award. And by the way, she was the worst teacher. And she taught me how to be a teacher by how terrible she was. What not to do. Yeah, she was awful. And she pitted us against each other. Mm. And she wasn't, she wasn't even helpful. And she was lazy and didn't really care. She came in in her giant scarves and sat there and sort of let everyone go at it. But 
But inexplicably and without asking me, she gave my stuff to her agency, her agent. And they called me and were like, well, we want to represent you. And I was like, I don't know what that means. So I had an agent at the age of 20 and I didn't have anything to show for it and had no writing. But here's what I had. I had someone calling me every four months and saying, are you writing a novel yet? And I would be like, no, I'm in a master's program in England. Yeah. I'm reading a lot of literature and they're like, get on it because you're losing time. (laughs) So actually what happened was we, I, you know, my parents were professors. I had massive student loans. I was working my way through grad school. I had loans from college as well, where I'd also done all this work study. I had no way to take time off to write a novel. And also my loans were looming. So this young agent said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to apply to 10 MFA programs, and you're going to get a fellowship, and you're going to have two years to write a novel. That's what you're doing next. And I was like, "That's okay. (laughs) So I did. That's what I did. So I did that. And then I wrote a novel, and then I sent it off to her. And and everyone else was writing short stories, so I secretly wrote a novel. I submitted all my stories from college. uh, It was very bad. It was not the way people should do it, but I, frankly, I'm so glad I did. It worked for you. came out of it. So I wrote this novel, and then I sent it off to her, and she called me and said, this is good as far as it goes, but you need another 100 pages. This is not a whole novel. And I was like, what? Oh, wow. That was when I really became a writer because I spent the next year working 40 hours a week in a wine store, a wine and gourmet cheese store in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I I wrote every night and worked my butt off. And, And then... Some crazy millionaire paid me $10,000 to ghostwrite his autobiography, this Virginia guy. He had been like the young, youngest Ford dealer in America, and he lived like a king and had like private planes and stuff. Anyway, so my new husband and I, who was also an English grad student, took that $10,000 and moved to New York. <laughs> and my agent was showing the manuscript. Nobody wanted it. Ten publishers, you know, turned it down. And then this editor at HarperCollins said... I'll I'll sit down with her and have lunch. So I had lunch and she said, okay, go, you need to do all these revisions and then I'll look at it again. And I said, no, I can't do that. You have to buy it now and I'll do anything you want. I promise. I'll work my butt off and you don't have to pay me much. I just need to know that you're going to publish it. I got my way into it. She was like, oh, all right. Well, since it's so little money, not much of a risk. (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. That's such a good story. That is a great story. I was very scrappy. Yeah, I love that. I mm-hmm. And it looks, your resume kind of looks so linear, like you just kept building, building, building. But right. gosh, that's a lot of twists and turns and windy roads. That was great. Well, my kids are, are co- you know, one's in college and two just graduated. And part of my message to them is you got to talk your way into things. Yeah. You have, you know, you're not there. No one's going to hand it to you right away. No. And right. it takes, it's hard. Yeah. And I've right. had lots of ups and downs. I mean, after I, at one point I wrote, you were talking about the different kind of genres yeah. I've written. Yeah. In. I wrote, I wrote a really literary novel that was so dark that my editor was like, Oh, for God's sake can you just write something lighter now first and let us publish it first? Because my previous novel hadn't done that well. And I was very much on the chopping block. I now realize. So I (laughs) went off and wrote this book like that. And that is my one sort of, I call it a romantic comedy, but it came out in the time of chiclet. And I'm, and I, and I hate that term so much. (sighs) And I hate being 
called that because I've always been reviewed seriously and taken seriously. I'd just written this really serious book, but I wrote this really fast-paced first-person, present-tense romp right. that took place in Maine called The Way Life Should Be. Yes. And it both saved my career and dented my career mm. at the same time. And then I published Bird in Hand, the one that had been so tortured, and people were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> so, you know, I've had, I've had a, a very, I've had a very textured career, let's just say. I yeah. love that. I had read where you said that you felt strangely buttonholed and chiclet was so belittling and Graham Greene does not, when he writes, it's entertainment for, for women, it's chiclet. And I wanted to talk about that. One of the reasons we started this podcast was just to get a woman's point of view and, and more than one woman's point of view, because Kate and I don't always see eye to eye. We don't always like the same characters. We don't always interpret things the same right. way. But we say that we are engaged in the simple but subversive act of taking women seriously. And mm -hmm. that is what we're seeing. Marketing is is not great, but also to me, the more troubling place is criticism and analysis. And when it's right. done by strictly white privileged men, you're getting one point of view and it's a point of view, but it's not a whole picture. And I was wondering, do you think, I know that you've spoken a little bit about historical fiction versus historical romance and how that's a trap only women get kind of pushed into as well. Do you think that we're making progress or is it still two step forward, one step back? Okay. So here's what I think, honestly, I do think that a, a lot of women writers want want to write what's called solidly called women's fiction. Yes. Chiclet isn't really used as a term anymore. anymore. No. But there are other there are other ways of saying that. I don't want to disparage anyone who wants to write solidly women's fiction or lighthearted romantic comedies. Yeah. And I think there's a huge place for those. And I get that. I don't mean to sound snobby about it, but I did a piece for Poets and Writers that may have been what you read with Lisa Gornick about yes, yes. the female ghetto that is historical yeah. fiction. Most men, like Colson Whitehead, who wrote The Nickel Boys mm -hmm. and, you know, Underground Railroad, of course, yep. mm -hmm. who write about the past aren't thrown into that category. Now, with that said, there are books that are absolutely historical fiction that women write and that men write. Sure. This novel, with the exiles, I really do accept that it fits the definition of historical fiction. Mm -hmm. With A Piece of the World, my previous novel, I bridled against it a lot because I felt I was trying to do something pretty different mm -hmm. from what historical fiction usually does. It's usually fairly sweeping. It's about a time in history that might be significant but overlooked, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. That's not what I was doing with the story of Andrew Wyeth and Christina Olson, but it is what I'm doing with this with this book, the, the Exiles. With each novel, I try to set myself different tasks. With all that said, I still think that it's more likely that if you're a female, yeah. you're going to be mm -hmm. pigeonholed than if you're a male. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I know, I know. So that's what completely. Yeah, that's what we're we're fighting against because we do we talk about rom-coms like they are art house film like we are like so serious get into the nitty-gritty of why this rom-com worked and lots of people you can watch it and just think it's fun but part of what we do what we want to do is 
get a little deeper into everything. It's if you want to do that, that's great. But we're going to look at it and we're going to take it all seriously. So I've right. seen uh, Palm Springs. Yes, I loved it. I did, and I, yeah. you know, and I thought that was a great example of it, a film that actually has a lot going on. Yes, mm-hmm. and. I even, this is embarrassing, but I watched it twice because my husband hadn't seen it. And I, I knew the only way to get him to watch it was watch to sit there. Yeah. And so, and the second time I watched it, I picked up on a whole lot more stuff. Oh, that's good. Again. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. think that's embarrassing. No, no. It's it a really clever conceit. It, it is. is. Very. It is. Perfect for the pandemic, but also horrible for the pandemic. It's like, exactly. oh, God. Actually, my yeah. my husband said to me, I think it was yesterday, he said, sometimes I think if I go walk out in the street, I'll just start the next day. I'm like, no, no, we're not in Palm Springs. <laughs> oh, I loved boy. how what, what so echoed the pandemic about Palm Springs was that was the sort of tra- trajectory of feelings mm-hmm. that you, yes. you have that at first there's something, I mean, it's crazy at first and you're so bewildered. And then there's something maybe freeing mm-hmm. and yeah. then it's completely depressing. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it yes. and the stages are not linear, right? They go, you have the one day that's like, okay, I can take on the world. The next day you're under your covers. The third day you're like, hmm, what if I try something else? Like it's not, it's not like a steady progression yeah. out. It's just you gotta just feel it all and then move move past it. Not yeah. about Palm Springs too long, but I just wanna say also that. What I also liked about it in terms of the pandemic is that the characters who undergo this, what happens in Palm Springs is it, it's a bit like Groundhog Day yes. and mm-hmm. you you get stuck in sort of a little bit of a time warp, quite a time warp. And that, I loved how different people react differently to being in that situation. And that's so true of the pandemic. And part of what's so yes. hard about it is that, for example, my sister-in-law hasn't really been out of her house in five months at all and you know she's she's reacting one way and then I have friends on the other side who are sort of like we're being careful but we're living our lives and there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of complicated interactions for everyone where do you fall in this you sort of you're you're always second guessing yourself but you're you know you're also at the mercy of other people's judgment all the time whether you're on this end or that end. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I might have to watch it twice yes. now, that, now that you said all yes. this. Kate, do you want to talk about her spidey sense? Yes. yes. In your acknowledgments, you wrote, as a novelist, I've learned to trust a particular tingle, a kind of spidey sense. So this to us rings a little bit like the universe speaking to you, linked maybe to fate or destiny, concepts that, that we really struggle with when when our logical lawyer brains are both lawyers take over. But but we embrace those kinds of sort of mystical woo-woo things on our writer side. So one of the ways we connect with that side of ourselves personally is through astrology. And we ask all our authors what their sign is and whether you relate to your sign. We're, we're keeping a tally. This seems obvious to me, but maybe it isn't. I'm a Capricorn. Oh, oh that makes sense. Well, yes. I'm pretty practical and methodical and in some ways. My husband is also a Capricorn, but he thinks it's all BS. Yes, of course. Um, But he's such a Capricorn. There are a lot of Capricorns in our family, but my my I have a son who's a Capricorn, and he was he's three days different from me. So I would say I am not woo woo at all. I I'm one of probably the only females on the planet, or at least on the East Coast, who really doesn't like yoga. I find it. (laughs) Me too. 
Me too. Really? Yeah, but Corinne's a yogi, but I just I can't I can't do it. I, maybe she can help me though. But I, my I'm sisters no and I realized we were sitting around the other day with a glass of wine, and we didn't know about each other that none of us have ever liked yoga. Right. That is. That is. I have a lot of woo woo friends, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I love about woo woo stuff. Right. To, let's, let's think of a better word. Yes. What I like about the idea of being in touch with your sister goddess and your inner everything is that. There is a way that creativity and writing in particular in my life are intuitive and not intellectual. Um, And that I have to embrace as I write a first draft or I'll never get a word on the paper. I have Mm -hmm. to believe that that it's going to come in a way that is not always conscious. And that that unconscious spewing that looks so lame and unattractive on the page will eventually be fodder for me to then turn into something else. And so there's a way in which I have to let go of my brain and just exist in a way that you can do in a spiritual kind of. But what I mean by spidey sense is actually a little different than that, which is that I've learned that I have, I've learned that the ideas that scare me, that feel ambitious, Mm. that speak to something deep in my own experience and interests I have to, I, I, those are the ideas. Here's what it is. Before Orphan Train, I wrote, and I still have a million of these ideas. I wrote stories about people like me who had, were thrust into unusual circumstances or who suddenly, whose marriage was suddenly on the brink or whatever, things like that. And those books I'm proud of, but what I've learned and what people are responding to in my work it's obvious by the books that I sell that are sold versus the ones that don't sell so well is the bigger stories, the more complicated and the more ambitious stories that only I can tell in a certain way, because just because of my own sensibility, whereas lots of people can write stories about women of a certain age who are living a certain kind of life that I've lived. So what I mean by spidey sense is what is a story that is like a tsunami? And I think, holy shit, I can't take that on. And I think right. I, I need to do that. So I'll, I'll give you an example. My new one is, I, this story has been in our family forever, but let's see. So I grew up, my parents are Southern and I grew up, we lived with my grandmother my in North Carolina for uh, a year and then some off and on as well. And she was always telling family stories. Like for example, I have two great, great uncles who or great, 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 who fought against each other in the civil war, you know, on two different sides and tore apart the family. My grandmother was orphaned and her father, when her mother died, her father drove a milk truck and he drove it into an oncoming train. We don't know if it was suicide, but you know, there are lots of family stories like that. We all have them. But another family story is that my mother's, let's see how, what's the connection? My mother's first cousins, several times removed, were two sisters named Sarah and Adelaide Yates. And they married two brothers who happened to be freaks, sideshow freaks in a traveling circus. They were the first conjoined twins that were written about, the first Siamese twins. They were Chang and Ang Bunker. So Sarah and Adelaide married Chang and Ang and settled in North Carolina, close to where my mother grew up. And they had 21 children. One had 11, one had 10. They lived on adjoining hillsides. And the men, the brothers, went back and forth every three days from one household to another. And when he was in one household, when the 
the head of the household was there. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was his domain sort of. And when they went to the other household, it was his domain. So those are my relatives, Sarah and Adelaide. I've always known this, but only after writing at the exiles and stumbling on the story again, my cousin is a genealogist and she was like, oh, have you, did you know what's going on with the bunker relatives? I realized, wow. I could only I can tell this story. This is my story in a way. And I have all this family history. It's about the Civil War. It's about difference. And it's about race. And it's about gender. There's just so much to it. So I'm going to tell this story. I'm writing the story from the perspective of the two sisters. And it's it's also about sisters. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you know, that's a crazy story. That's a big story. Before I took on these bigger and bigger stories, I wouldn't have felt that I could handle that story mm-hmm. just because it's so enormous. Right. And there's a lot to it that's actually complicated to write about. Right. So I have yeah. a, I want to ask though, you said before when you were didn't lose that creativity, you just kept following the slim yeses. Is that the same thing, the spidey senses? Is that the tingle that you have to follow? The spidey sense is about a story idea. You know, a lot of my writer friends talk about yeah. this, that it's, Having being successful is a weird word. Let me think. Finding a way to make a life as a writer is a is a tightrope, and a lot of people publish one or two books and then can't do a next, yeah. uh, do mm-hmm. another. It's true of memoirs, I think, a lot because you have stories that are close to you, and then it's hard to figure out the next thing. Mm-hmm. Although some people, like Danny Shapiro and Anne Lamott find ways to write about their lives in different ways, different aspects. For novelists, though, too, the subject matter and the scope of the story is so important. If you want to have a long career, part of it is about recognizing what's worth spending. In my case, I'm Uh, three years from publication to publication, pretty much. mm -hmm. So that's, I don't write a book a year or two books a year like some people. Yes, that's right. I just can't. I do too much research and I'm also slow. And also I you know, like to hang out with people. Uh, um, (laughs) To have a life. I like to, I I do. I have a big life. I mean, three kids and lots of, you know, so I, 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 it has to be the right, it has to be a story that is interesting enough to not only sustain Mm -hmm. my own obsession for two years, but but to grab right readers. And, and what is it that I, again, what, can I do that other people can't? There's this Oprah quote. Oprah said when her beloved dog Sophie died, she said, what were you put in my life to show me that only your death could teach me? Mm. And that quote for me resonates on other levels. It's not only about mortality and death and losing things, but it's sort of like what stories come my way that, that, are an opportunity to explore, to go down a new path. Virginia Woolf said, arrange whatever pieces come your way. And there's this third quote that I love that is also connected, which is notice what you notice. Mm. And the reason I love that, and I always tell my students this, is that as writers, we can feel overwhelmed by what we should be writing about, what we should be noticing, what we should be putting on the page or taking in. And when I write books that require a lot of research in particular, I feel sometimes overwhelmed by the amount. What story, how do I carve a narrow story out of this enormous amount of material? 
And so notice what you notice is so wonderful because it's about trusting what you take in, what you see on the side of the road, what you feel your character is going to undergo in one particular kind of circumstance. Because it's there's this old children's book that I love, Harold and the Purple Crayon. Oh, yes. Harold is, yeah, remember <laughs> yes. that classic book? And he, so Harold has to, every single thing he does, he has to draw himself. So if he wants to go through a doorway, he has to draw the door and then draw the doorknob mm-hmm. and then he can open the door and then he has to draw what he's going into. If he wants to cross the lake, he has to draw the lake and then the boat and then the oars mm-hmm. before he can get across. And that's what it feels like to me to write a novel. It's about drawing each thing, but choosing each thing and what, right. how that thing leads you to the next. And so notice what you notice to me is like Harold noticing that he has to have this particular boat to get in that particular body of water to get across that particular sea to the the other side. I love You must be such a good teacher. Oh my gosh. I I feel like I'm in your class. I'm just like, tell me more. Seriously. Oh, we we are going to, no, we love it, but we're going to bring it back to the exiles now, which as we've discussed is told from three points of view. One of them being an indigenous little girl, as you said earlier, Mathena. Okay. So about this, you wrote, as I did the research for this novel, I realized that I could not tell the story of the convict women without addressing the history of the indigenous people whose way of life was destroyed when European colonists landed on their shores. The convict women endured terrible hardship, but their experience paled in comparison to that of the native people. Writing about cultures other than your own is fraught and complicated. That was the sentence that jumped out to us. We loved that you didn't shy away from it just because it was fraught and complicated. And it's clear that you really gave that perspective the, you didn't take it lightly, right? So what did you do to get Mathena right? Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, I did a ton of research about what it was like to be an Aboriginal person in the mid-19th century. And I had two consultants that I worked with one of whom is maybe the world expert he's a professor of aboriginal history he himself is descended from a tasmanian tribe he has written so extensively about race and culture he's consulted with museums and with other writers and with universities and he's involved now in a truth and reconciliation project in tasmania because it's only recently that that the australian white people right. as a whole, mm-hmm. have really begun to wrestle with what happened, right. what they did to the Aboriginal people. And it's similar to our Black yes. Lives Matter movement, and in fact, has been influenced by that. Our All the waves of activism in America, reading Australian newspapers in the past three and four months, you see lots of writing about how it inspired people to take to the streets in Australia as well. So for myself, the original idea was to write about the convict women. I had read quite a bit about them. But the more I learned, the more I felt, as I said, it would be irresponsible not to address what had happened to the Aboriginal people at the same time that I recognized that I don't have the authority. I'm not myself uh, an Aboriginal person. So I did some things. I, I wrote from the in the third person, not in the first person. I wrote about a young person, not a fully developed adult consciousness. Right. And I also followed very closely this true story of this Aboriginal girl. One of the things 
that also helped me is that I had written a novel, my previous novel, A Piece of the World, was about a woman, Christina Olson, whose story in real life became increasingly difficult. She was more and more disabled. She lived in poverty in the later years. She had no heater, running water, no modern amenities, and things were fairly dire. And I knew when I researched the, for that book that I wanted to end on a moment of connection mm. with her and, as it turned out in that book, with her and Andrew Wyeth, the painter, where she felt that she was seen by someone. And I didn't address the last 20 years of her life, mm. although I mentioned them um, in other places. But I did the same thing with this character because in, in real life, Methina's story was, was very tragic. She was eventually um, exiled from the governor's mansion when they went, decided to go back to England and left her behind. And then she had to live between two worlds because the Aboriginal people who she had been taken from no longer knew her and the white people did not accept her. So she wandered mm -hmm. and at the age of 17, she drowned in a, in a stream and she, they don't know if it was suicide or murder or if she had, she, she had taken up alcohol. They, they just don't know. So the last years of her life were awful. And, and I wanted to convey that, but I wanted to end on a moment of connection. And so I'm not sure that I pulled it off, but I did what I could. Yeah. I did what I could with the story that exists. And even though we don't know that story, most Americans have never right. heard that story. It's quite well known in parts of Australia. So I wanted to get the facts right. Yes, which which brings me beautifully again to my last to our last question about the exiles. It's been optioned for TV by made up stories who clearly they, they have a strong connection to Australia. So they will will take good care of this project. They're they're incredible. It's a female run company. It's all women mm -hmm. except for the man who's the <laughs> and they've done Wild and Big Little Lies and Gone Girl, and they, they do female-driven, really feminist films. Yes. And it's really exciting to work with them. I'm an executive I producer. know. That's what we were – I was going to say, you've gotten your seat yeah. at the Hollywood table here. I know. I'm so bossy in general. Like, I am shocked that they're allowing me to do this because there are two <laughs> other, my two most recent novels are also kind of chugging along and Orphan Train in particular is moving quite, is moving quite quickly. And they've signed Helen Mirren oh, and they have a great director, Neil Berger. And Neil, like, will Zoom with me. I'm shocked because oh I don't gosh. have any, I don't have any bona fides for that movie, but he's allowing me to, to yak about, you know, what I think you should do. So, oh, that's so now I have an official role to do that, which is nice. Oh, I love that because, you know, we've talked to a lot of authors or just in things that we've researched and, and everyone is different in terms of the level of involvement they want to have. You know, I mean, some of them are like, I wrote the book, like Celeste Dang was like, that book exists how it exists in my mind. And that's it. It will always be that. They can do whatever they want with it on the screen. Of course, they did consult her for the Hulu adaptation too, but she didn't want to write it. She, she didn't want any hand in writing it, you know, whereas others, of course, total opposite extremes do want to be involved in, in writing it. And so it's it's interesting to see sort of the spectrum for the author of, of how much involvement they want to have. Yeah. I mean, I think that just to define my own interest, like I 
don't want to write it, but I want to edit it, which I've done with the other scripts for Peace of the World. And, and I also want to brainstorm ideas sure. because this yeah. is a series. So it will be, there'll be a lot more detail. And I actually have this, I sent them this 50 page single spaced kind of Bible that I hammered out for the book. And oh. there are characters in there that I never used. And, you know, there are oh. a lot, there's a lot more oh. that I did for this book that I think could be part of the bigger picture. And I just want to say one last thing about Made Up Stories, which is that they did a film that came out last year called The Nightingale, not to be confused with Kristen Hanna's wonderful book, but but it's about convict women in Tasmania and Aboriginal people. And it's a really brutal film, but it's so good. That was the most... (laughs) But someone recommended that movie to me. Someone early on in this podcast. I forget. I'm so glad you just said it. They recommended that to me. Yeah. Yeah. After I saw it, I I called my editor and said, oh my God, is my book way too not depressing? Is my book way too sugarcoated? Because this novel, this movie was so hard. Right. And she was like, uh, no, it is not. Right. That is not a problem okay. with this book. But I purposely chose the 1840s instead of the period she filmed that that film was about, which was the 1820s, because things got much better actually for convict women by that point in the 1820s it was kind of a free-for-all and women really were brought over as breeders Mm. and by the 1840s the British press had gotten a hold of some stories and they were like oh we maybe we need to be a little bit more playing by the rules here so yeah Uh, well that's exciting and I love that you've you're like I'm involved I got I got things to (laughs) add here I mean, you're the expert. I would listen to you, too. I mean, I would want you in, involved in this, but that's fantastic. Just a little bossy. You... No, you know, I'm going to get, I have a t-shirt that everyone loves that I have, and it says, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. So yes. it's, it's a good one. Yeah, good you're, one. Just, you're just the boss. It's that's fine. That's right. Exactly. Oh, you've given us a lot of good content to go look up and yes. read into more and cannot wait for everyone to read the exiles and then eventually see it on tv it's so exciting thank you all so much Uh, tell tell everybody where they can find you your website social media whatever you want to share yeah everything's some variation on my name so my website is christinabakerkline.com and then i'm i think i'm baker klein and various other places twitter or i'm barely on twitter i'm trying to decide twitter's a lot sinkhole it's such a Finally, I finally discovered Instagram and I'm happy to be posting there okay. and on Facebook yeah. and Facebook author page. So great. Yeah. yeah. You're Baker Klein on Instagram. I know that. Yeah. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for taking time. This was such a fantastic conversation. I feel like I took away so much. I'm like radiating with excitement, right? So thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.